National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. We'll bring in guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If there are topics you'd like us to cover, please email KYMN Radio, and I'll do my very best to find experts who can address your topic. Our show today takes us to Hawaii, home of the headquarters for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Our guest is Rear Admiral Mike Studeman, the Director of Intelligence, or the J-2, for the Theater Command. Rear Admiral Studeman is the son of a career naval officer and a 1988 graduate of the College of William and Mary. He's a distinguished graduate of the Naval Postgraduate School, an honors graduate in Mandarin Chinese from the Defense Language Institute, and a distinguished graduate of the National War College. Rear Admiral Studeman has served in a variety of afloat and staff positions throughout his long and distinguished naval career, including supporting operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm and Operation Enduring Freedom. Ashore, Mike Studeman has spearheaded or led a wide variety of military and intelligence organizations in support of American national security interests, particularly those linked to China. He's even served as a White House fellow. Rear Admiral Mike Studeman previously commanded the Hopper Information Services Center in Suitland, Maryland, and the Joint Intelligence Operations Center at U.S. Cyber Command on Fort Meade, Maryland. Prior to taking his current position with U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, Mike Studeman was the Director of Intelligence for U.S. Southern Command, located in Miami, Florida. Rear Admiral Mike Studeman, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, John. Thanks. Uh, uh, Pleasure to be here, and uh, thanks for extending the offer. I look forward to our chat. So how are things out in Hawaii? I'm assuming it's beautiful Hawaii weather. Well, yes, it can get a little uh, boring here, 78 to 82, you know, that can, uh, that can wear on you after a while. Uh, the balmy weather, the, the sun, uh, all the rest. Uh, of course, you miss the seasons, uh, but uh, for a few years of being out there in the middle of the Pacific can be uh, quite a wonderful experience. Uh, it is a slice of paradise. So, Admiral, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started on our topic today. There's a, there's a lot to cover. Uh, and, and our topic is going to be the state of affairs in the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command's area of responsibility, also referred to as an AOR. Uh, can you give our audience a description of the area covered by U.S. Indo-Pacific Command? Sure thing, John. The Indo-Pacific uh, covers 52% of the Earth, uh, covers from essentially the west coast of the United States uh, all the way to the India-Pakistan border. Uh, we like to say that it spans and east-west uh, Hollywood to Bollywood, and uh, north-south, uh, essentially from uh, the Arctic uh, to the Antarctic, or you know, penguins to, to polar bears. Uh, so we have a wide swath. Uh, inside of that are 36 countries. Uh, those countries, uh, seven of the ten uh, largest militaries are present in the Indo-Pacific theater, many of them uh, nuclear-armed from the... Uh, from the group of nuclear-armed countries uh, globally, um, and we have uh, a number of different challenges that range from Russia to North Korea to China to terrorism, which we're happy to talk about uh, later on. Okay. And, and Indo-PACOM, as it's often abbreviated, is a joint command. Uh, and what exactly does that mean? So it's made up of all of the different uh, services. Uh, so the headquarters staff at 
Camp Smith in Oahu, uh, is uh, is in charge of coordinating and orchestrating a lot of what the service components uh, do. And so there are a number of different organizations that are subordinate to the Indo-Pacific Command that are also on Oahu. So, for example, you have the Pacific Fleet Commander and his staff and all of his assets, the naval assets in the Pacific. Uh, you have Pacific Air Forces, you have uh, Marines, uh, you have the Army. Uh, so all those uh, different services work together to combine joint forces in a way uh, designed to achieve the best possible effects as we advance uh, the strategy and the goals of uh, Washington, D.C., and president and uh, security leaders of our country. Okay. And who, who is currently in command at Indo-PACOM, and, and how long has he been in command? So uh, Admiral Davidson uh, just completed a three-year tour, and he was succeeded by Admiral Chris uh, Aquilino, uh, call sign Lung. Aviators <laughs> uh, get a call sign, so he got his early in his career. But uh, Admiral Aquilino uh, spent time flying Tomcats, uh, F-14s, uh, you remember that from Top Gun, uh, and F-18s. He commanded uh, carrier strike groups and um, has, uh, has spent time doing a lot of important jobs in the Navy and the Joint Force. And so he just came up about a month ago from being the commander of the Pacific Fleet uh, to become confirmed as the new Indo-Pacific commander. So very familiar with the theater. He, yes, he comes uh, ready to roll, and we've seen that already in the first few weeks where we've enjoyed having him in command. <laughs> I, I, I understand what that means. <laughs> so so clearly uh, Admiral Aquilino probably has uh, already set some key priorities for the staff. Uh, what are his greatest immediate concerns in, in the Pacific, if you can share those? Sure. I mean, he's still working out with the rest of the staff uh, exactly how we want to think of the hierarchy of priorities. Uh, but the number one thing, as you'd expect from anybody in the Defense Department, is being prepared uh, to fight and win. And so uh, warfighting readiness is at the top of his docket for priorities uh, here. And it's no surprise that is the no-fail part of uh, his mission. Uh, and so there are many moving parts to making sure that you're ready for any contingency anywhere in the wide Pacific. But, of course, uh, maintaining uh, peace and security and stability are part of our national security objectives there, and that's what we do on a day-to-day basis is to try to, you know, compete uh, well and to bolster our partners and our allies and to be able to uh, advance our security objectives and avoid having them be threatened uh, by others. So the... So for our audience, excuse me, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Rear Admiral Mike Studeman, the Director of Intelligence for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Uh, so, Mike, you're the Director of Intelligence at Indo-PACOM. What, what does that mean exactly, and can you give us a sense of what you do in your daily duties, what organizations you oversee, and perhaps the travel you take to coordinate intelligence across the theater? Sure. Uh, So the intelligence uh, directorate has uh, a number of different people. I'll I'll keep the number uh, here confidential, Uh, but uh, we have hundreds uh, that are essentially working very hard every day 
uh, to be able to track and monitor everything that's going on in the Indo-Pacific. We have a role that we call indications and warning where we need to look uh, for any traces of something that will be alerting to us in the national security community and call that out and find it, the context to it and uh, provide that news as quickly as possible up the, uh, the chain of command. Uh, so we do a lot of analysis and production uh, and that consumes time as you think about writing reports or briefing and you know, being able to move information around. And this circulates not just within the Indo-Pacific Command, but we do a chunk of reporting that then uh, flows into and out of the larger intelligence community of the 18 agencies that form part of the intelligence community. Um, so analysis and production is a big part. Collections is a broad term that we use to describe uh, a number of different intelligence disciplines that we use to facilitate uh, being able to actually analyze what's going on. And so sometimes that, uh, that comes from open sources, uh, publicly available information. That's an important feed, but we also augment that with classified sources, whether or not that's coming from uh, national overhead space-based systems or you know, airborne intelligence collectors or, or human collectors. Uh, we, uh, we combine all of those different ints to fuse uh, an understanding of what's really developing and we'll provide predictions and assessments about what that all means. Uh, we also do uh, a lot of what we call Intel diplomacy, which is uh, to engage with our, our key allies and partners and share information because they are better positioned in certain parts of the world to understand developments, uh, for example, in Korea, or they could be in other parts of East Asia or Southeast Asia. And so we spend a lot of time uh, listening and uh, hearing uh, their views and what they have been able to collect themselves. And that allows us to have a uh, better understanding at large of what's really developing in the theater so that we can uh, give our decision makers some maneuver space and lead time to be able to think through what's happening and to be able to act when uh, they should act uh, from an informed standpoint. And I, and I have to think that uh, working closely with uh, allies and partners across the region uh, is not only uh, true for the sharing of intelligence, but also the uh, combined training exercises that are done. Exactly. And so there are a number of different events that may punctuate uh, an annual calendar. Some of those are larger exercises. Some of them uh, could be more formalized intel exchanges where we might uh, plan uh, to send a team of uh, subject matter experts on something over to uh, another country and they'll spend a week or two there and they'll train them on specific techniques related to uh, whatever discipline that they're looking at, um, or we'll just uh, spend time uh, briefing one another on a variety of different topics, uh, allowing for discussion and dialogue. And so those things are formally planned. And then there are the informally uh, established connection points, which you would expect because you live in a world that's evolving and dynamic, <laughs> that sometimes we have to on the fly be able to connect with our partners. And we do that with some of them through classified Intel machines uh, that allow us to, to speak uh, remotely to one another virtually, but also in a, in a confidential way to be able to discuss uh, what's happening in the world. And, and, I, and I think it's uh, important to highlight for our audience that uh, 
one of the reasons that we do all these things is that uh, in a crisis, you really can't surge trust and competence. You have to have those things established well ahead of time, which is why we in the military spend so much time and energy working on these uh, these relationships with our with our allies and friends around the world. Uh, w- would you say that's that's true, Mike? John, that's exactly right. And so you have to invest in others and you have to come with the humility that you don't know it all. Uh, you may have more technical systems, but they have better you know, understanding of their neighborhood uh, and themselves. And so you'll miss something if you come at a relationship with hubris uh, here. And so we, we believe we are equal partners. And we stress that every time we have an engagement and uh those relationships pay off in spades. We have uh, built up a lot of uh, trust by truth-telling and sharing. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we'll just share uh, you know, things without a quid pro quo in mind. So it's not transactional in nature. It's just giving because giving is the right thing to do. And that really earns a lot of uh, credibility, trust, and strong connective tissue that will see you through surge times, hard times, when there may be a crisis that you're both dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, so for our audience, uh, this is, this is going to be a difficult question, Mike, but I'm putting you on the spot. What is the hardest part of your job? I mean, you cover, uh, you're, the, you're the director of intelligence for a region that covers half the planet. Uh, there's so many serious strategic challenges in the Indo-PACOM theater. How do you prioritize your focus? You know, how do you focus the intelligence assets and, and the intel analysts on such a wide variety of issues and challenges? Well, we have a great team, and we have a lot of subject matter experts. Uh, I trust my team uh, to really cover the region well. I will tell you honestly that uh, the most difficult challenge is working with Washington, D.C. We <laughs> have a lot of folks there that are doing uh, tremendous work, uh, but we have been slow to be able to switch to prioritize the national security challenges that uh, affect uh, our country you know, more deeply and globally. Um, and so we, as you know, have been, you know, very concerned about, uh, how we are working in the Middle East to be able to establish peace and security, uh, there and advance our interests and those of our partners. We have an Afghanistan withdrawal that we have to oversee, uh, now. So those are, have been important regional issues that have consumed a lot of our resources, particularly in the intelligence community. Uh, and we've neglected for some amount of time uh, what's really going on with uh, places like um, China. And so um, it's it's received uh, a fair amount of uh, coverage, but not sufficient to the magnitude of the challenge or the implications for um, the grand geopolitics that the 21st century will see with regard to uh, the rise of China and what it means uh, for every nation on the planet. And so it requires a, a proportionate, uh, proper apportionment of resources to do the job. And we still have perhaps uh, too much uh, dedicated to Middle East issues. This is a well-known issue. Uh, Washington has talked about it for years. Uh, we have seen uh, a slow shift, but we would probably need to see that accelerated if we were truly going to address the uh, the bigger issues the way the bigger issues should be addressed. Mm-hmm. And, and you brought up China. I want to circle back to China a little bit later. 
but for for right now, maybe you could give our our listeners a sense of what your intelligence team is looking at on a daily basis, uh, kind of a an around the theater, very brief synopsis of uh, current events. Sure, um, I will tell you that we're uh, concerned about uh, a lot of what we call red uh, or opponent uh, states; those whose interests uh, seem to uh, be unaligned with ours. Uh, and so uh, China and Russia come to the very top. If you look at our national security uh, objectives, China is at the top of our concern list of the Biden administration. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, but let's talk about Russia just for, for a second, because uh, the Russians um, intend to demonstrate uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, their uh, reach and their power. And so we're tracking, for example, a number of different uh, ships um, and uh, other assets that, that may, in fact, uh, try to do some long-range missions uh, in the broad Pacific that we haven't seen in a while. And so that all uh, will take uh, a lot of our intelligence resources to track and report and understand exactly what the Russians are doing. So oftentimes the Russians are described as spoilers uh, <laughs> in the world, uh, committing gray zone actions and surgically uh, trying to undermine U.S. Uh, NATO interests. And we see that in the Indo-Pacific uh, as well. Uh, but they... They have uh, a small but uh, modernizing capability in the Far East, and those uh, modernizations come with some very potent capabilities that we can't um, underestimate. And so that will continue to be an area, you know, of focus. North Korea is always a concern there. You may recall in 2017 and 2018 that we nearly came to blows uh, in North Korea uh, surrounding you know, their commitment to denuclearization um, and uh, Kim Jong-un's uh, policies. And so uh, that could that could cook off again. Uh, we just don't know. Very unpredictable uh, what policies uh, KJU, as we call them, uh, will pursue. Um, we can talk more about Korea, but that's always a volatile part of the planet. Sure. And uh, somebody with nuclear weapons, even with a small number of nuclear weapons, can can threaten the United States and others uh, very quickly. Uh, China, of course, the breadth and, and, and depth of the China problem uh, could consume us for hours here, uh, and we can talk about that um, in more detail. But suffice it to say, if I had an executive thing to say about China, that China's rise has been one that's demonstrated uh, its assertiveness, uh, its aggressiveness, its boldness, uh, to be able to you know, undermine the international system as we've known it and to create a new pole in a multipolar world. And that pole, um, the leading pole, uh, the Chinese like to see would be based out of Beijing. Mm-hmm. And Xi Jinping has uh, really transformed uh, the Chinese Communist Party to be centralized around him. And he intends to change the world in a way that puts China back as the Middle Kingdom, the central most authoritative, most influential country on the planet. It's not a regional issue. It is a global issue. Sure. And then, of course, we have uh, a number of different terrorist concerns throughout uh, Asia. We have weather concerns and the impacts that that creates in terms of humanitarian uh, disasters. And we have geopolitical concerns uh, that uh, crop up 
uh, that are of, uh, of ongoing concern. Uh, perhaps Burma is the best example of that one. Yep. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Rear Admiral Mike Studeman, the Director of Intelligence for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command. Uh, so, so Mike, you just finished uh, kind of giving us a brief synopsis of uh, some of the highlights going on in the Indo-Pacific uh, theater right now. Uh, let's drill down a bit on some of the current issues uh, in the theater. Maybe start small and expand into the, the really challenging issues, finish up maybe with China. Uh, so Salafist jihadism, is, is it much of a challenge in the theater? I know Abu Sayyaf has been a nuisance in the southern Philippines. Uh, are there other places where the Islamic State and, and other ideological adherents are, are active right now? Well, we, yes, we, we uh, will underestimate uh, terrorism even in its small pockets uh, at our own peril. And so it does require uh, many countries to be, you know, uh, finely attuned to uh, what, the, what the terrorist groups are planning and doing. And, of course, um, many of them in the Indo-Pacific are now uh, ISIS affiliates or they've sworn some form of allegiance at some point uh, to ISIS. And that normally uh, garners uh, some increased funding and uh, support in certain ways. And so uh, we're very uh, we're very focused on trying to make sure we understand those ties and where we can disrupt them. Uh, but this stuff is hard because the numbers may be small, uh, but uh, many of these terrorists are able to hide in many uh, parts of uh, in the Pacific, which make yeah, it's hard to kind of on the IF group for you know many years. Uh, they've had uh, many successes, uh, but they are still a force there. Of course, in the Philippines, we were disturbed by. You know, some new trends that we saw with uh, suicide bombings, which we had not seen in previous years, right. that began to show up in small numbers. And uh, females, uh, in fact, uh, that were involved in some of those suicide bombings. And so those are a couple of new trends there that uh, cause uh, concern. But anywhere you look across the Grand Swath, if you look in the southern latitudes in particular, you'll find, you know, concerns. Um so uh, let's just sort of talk about some representative examples. Uh, you'll remember that, uh, that Sri Lanka had the uh, Easter Sunday uh, bombings in 2019 that killed uh, 250. And so that, those were the local groups that then became affiliated with ISIS. ISIS claimed that. Uh, and so uh, that shocked the country. It had been one of the worst uh, terrorist uh, incidents that uh, Sri Lanka has ever faced. Mm -hmm. Just recently, if you look just uh, to the southwest of Sri Lanka and the Maldives, uh, there was an attack on a Speaker of Parliament, the former president, uh, bombing outside his home uh, that injured him and, and others. And so uh, that's, a, that's a concern there in, in that region. And if you were to look at uh, South Asia in general, since we're over there, uh, in the western part, you'd, you'd have to factor in what the Pakistan groups like the JEM, uh, Jaishi Muhammad, what they do uh, to conduct attacks uh, in uh, Indian-controlled Kashmir and uh, what that, that results in. In fact, you remember a couple years ago, 
uh, there was an attack by Jim on a police convoy that killed about 40. And the Indians struck back at some terrorist camps uh, in uh, Pakistan. Uh, Indian pilot was shot down. It was held for a while. It was an international incident. Um, and it was a concern because it involved how terrorism uh, then sparked uh, what could have been uh, nuclear tensions between Pakistan and India. So these things are not uh, small in scope. Uh, a very uh, small uh, action can result in you know major geopolitical convulsions. And, and so South Asia is always concerned in this regard. Sure. But look, this stuff is not Muslim only. There was, uh, yeah. you remember the Australian national who right. went to Christ church and, and then uh, killed 50 plus uh, in a mosque yeah. uh, there. Yeah. So Islamophobic, you know, anti-Semitic, um, you know, white nationalist types that are also uh, of concern here. And so we've just got to make sure that, you know, we we can assist where we can. Some of these things are a function of law enforcement in these respective countries, but some of them have that transnational flavor. And we've got to be able to help out if we have some intelligence uh, that can assist in understanding the transnational connections. Sure. Yep. Uh, so let's shift over to a, a, a somewhat larger uh, challenge, and that's uh, Myanmar. You mentioned, uh, you know, the Burma challenge. I have to imagine the situation in Myanmar is keeping some of your analysts uh, pretty busy right now because it looks like it's pretty fluid. Uh, it looks like uh, some of the uh, the ethnic groups around the country may be consolidating a little bit more uh, in a cooperative uh, approach to dealing with the, the military junta this time. H- how do you see that situation shaping up? Well, uh, Burma had some real promise, right? I mean, they had their first democratically elected uh, leader in parliament uh, back in uh, 2012, and it looked like they were turning the corner uh, until General Huang essentially, uh, for his own personal ambitions, uh, really, uh, decided to enact a coup back in uh, February this year. And uh, since then, the, the country has been riven by uh, divisions and protests and, you know, uh, rebellion uh, against uh, what became uh, put uh, by uh, by the generals, essentially. And so one uh, can see that this, this trajectory that the Burmese were on was hijacked uh, by, you know, a few uh, military leaders. And um, so just a, a real a real shame, um, a humiliation uh, there uh, for for the country. And that the blame is to be put at the general's doorstep. Uh, the concern here, not only about the citizens, uh, where you've had over 800 killed in very harsh tactics that the Burmese have used, mm-hmm. uh, over 4,000, you know, arrested. And, you know, with this oppression that has ensued, uh, a real problem, um, for all of the citizens of, of Burma uh, now, the, uh, the ethnic groups uh, up to the north have also uh, pushed back on the military coup and the military in general. And so there has been fighting uh, up there uh, in border areas, uh, border India and Thailand and other areas. Uh, so the concern is some of this stuff will, of course, spill over with uh, humanitarian um, you know, uh, folks who are trying to uh, seek 
some refuge uh, from the oppression, the fighting, uh, spilling over into other border areas. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think there'll be uh, some amount of chaos for uh, time, some time to come. Uh, the, the population may desire and, and organize to resist, but really they don't have the, the kind of uh, wherewithal that would, would be able to take on the Burmese military. So I, I think it will be uh, a problem for uh, some time to come. Uh, here and it's just hard to watch uh, there. ASEAN has been uh, trying to balance uh, here. They have policy of not interfering in domestic affairs of neighboring states, and so they've they frankly tried to do what they can do, uh, working together. But it clearly hasn't been enough to change the trajectory of where uh, Burma's uh, headed right now. It's hard too to watch uh, that some of the tools of oppression. We think that the Chinese have been involved in providing communications, monitoring <laughs> gear to be able to enable, you know, spying on the citizens and enabling arrests and things like that. And yeah. so it's a, it's a challenge. Yeah, and I, in fact, I was just about to ask you about uh, how how much the Chinese are backing uh, the military junta because their interests seem to be somewhat aligned in many ways. The Chinese uh, are typically ones that put their chips down on almost every player in a, a domestic setting and it doesn't matter which country you're talking about uh, they they will uh, work with the with the government and the individuals in power and they will also uh, hedge their bets by supporting uh, opponents there and grooming others who might in fact be legitimate uh, future rulers uh, too so um, the, the Chinese uh, always play, um, a very sophisticated uh, game, and are not, uh, they're not uh, reserved about uh, the methods that they use uh, from uh, bribery and blackmail and corruption uh, all the way through legitimate you know, deals that will benefit political and business elites. Uh, so it's, uh, we see much of the same here uh, when it comes to dealing with Burma, but in general, uh, you can say that they wouldn't want to put a public face on what they've been able to, to do so far, but there has been some uh, back dealing, we think, uh, with the Burmese uh, junta in terms of providing them with the kind of telecom spying gear uh, that the Chinese use uh, in a prolific way within their own country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's let's shift over briefly to North Korea, and then we're going to focus on China if uh, if we have a few more minutes. So North Korea, with the new Biden administration, how has that impacted North Korea's actions on the peninsula? Well, uh, Kim Jong Un has been very consumed internally uh, because uh, although he'll say there have been no COVID cases, uh, he has had a COVID problem, and so he's essentially closed off. His borders, he's opened up a little bit, uh, not too much, uh, but for many, many months um, in 2020, uh, he essentially tried to seal the country and to uh, prevent COVID from spreading uh, that way. Very paranoid about, you know, any uh, COVID uh, traces being on uh, products and goods that might come into into North Korea. And so uh, he self-imposed uh, these restrictions and then had to a deep impact, perhaps even a starker impact than the existing international 
sanctions applied by the United Nations. Uh, he also had a series of things, uh, natural disasters and floods and things like that, that uh, also um, impacted the North Korean economy. Uh, so he's had uh, a tough run uh, over the last uh, year plus and been consumed with trying to stabilize uh, himself uh, and the country. Um, and so he hasn't had a lot of extra energy to, uh, to create provocations and to destabilize the peninsula in other ways uh, that, that he's been known. Um, and he's also more dependent because of his, uh, his dire situation on China. And, and when, he, when he leans on China, China then has more influence to be able to try to temper uh, his behaviors. He knows, for example, that if he were to uh, go crazy with a, lo- a lot of different uh, launches of ballistic missiles uh, designed to grab the international attention and create some kind of crisis to uh, work towards what he wants, which is sanctions relief, uh, that the Chinese would come down uh, hard on him and perhaps uh, deny him the very goods and support that he needs to recover economically right now. Yeah, I, I, throughout my career, I always kind of looked at North Korea as uh, as a country that continues to exist only because Beijing finds it a, a useful uh, <laughs> tool uh, to go after the the United States and and the other countries in the uh, Western Pacific. Uh, and when that when it's no longer useful, you will no longer see any support from Beijing for uh, the, the Kim Jong Un uh, continued leadership. <laughs> well, it is currently a buffer state for the Chinese, and yep. so they. They uh, they may not always uh, like what they see over there, and they'll they'll plug their nose uh, with many North Korean choices uh, there. But at the same time, um, it's it's uh, the least worst of all possibilities uh, there. Uh, of course, they don't want a U.S. allied nation right on their border, and so for now, it's a convenient uh, prop uh, for them yeah. uh, to be able to support KJU. So finally, let's talk about kind of the biggest challenge in the uh, Indo-PACOM theater, the People's Republic of China. And, and while you may be looking at the country as a whole, your biggest challenge as the J2 for Indo-PACOM is really the People's Liberation Army and uh, their component uh, services. And I'll give you the floor here to express your analytical assessment of, of the challenges inherent in China's activities uh, over the last few years. Perhaps your assessment of what they're trying to achieve in the Western Pacific uh, in Asia more broadly, and maybe even on a on a global scale. Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, and, and so, feel free to interrupt before I just go on a, a monologue on this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, China is the most consequential country in terms of how it is reshaping the world order. And to understand this first, you have to understand this is a global issue in which every country has a stake in the outcome. This is not. Um, the so-called great power competition actually shunts this issue off into this other place that's not helpful. The, there is a reason why that was called what it was, but at the end, um, when you analyze um, the nature of great power competition, it suggests to you that this is only a concern of you know big states, and, and the rest of them should just kind of get out of the way uh, and see who ends up becoming the winner in all this. And that's actually 180 degrees out from, you know, what 
I think the right approach uh, is, and that is to understand how to deal with the uh, growing power and influence of China and how it emanates and radiates throughout every country in the world and what it means for these countries. Uh, and so uh, China has got to be understood on its own terms with a clear-eyed understanding of their goal and how they intend to achieve it. And so this becomes a concern of every nation on this planet uh, to tr- truly make informed decisions about their future because uh, their sovereignty is at stake, their prosperity and their economies are at stake, <clears throat> and their security is at stake. And so, um, so we do as much as we can to educate about what China is really all, all about. Mm-hmm. And so let's just start in the beginning. First of all, China's aspirations are not simply on its borders. They're not regional. They're absolutely global in nature. As I said before, uh, the Chinese and the Russians are working closely together on a lot of issues. See that, that uh, the U.S. should be taken down and become less influential uh, in the world. And they would like to actively work to diminish U.S. and U.S. allied influence in the world. And so uh, they are working to be able to establish influence in every corner of the world and to build up their comprehensive national strengths. And so the Chinese clearly have a stronger ability to do this than the Russians. Um, And so the the Chinese, with their Belt and Road Initiative, have tried to link a number of different states uh, together to facilitate uh, what will be a fairly clear sort of extractive um, uh, technique of being able to move uh, goods and supplies across uh, rail systems and maritime systems, ports and airfields and whatnot uh, to enable uh, China to modernize and grow uh, to a point where it becomes uh, the strongest nation on the, on, on the planet. And so uh, the Belt and Road Initiative is a key component of how China views itself in terms of its national rejuvenation, which it, which it has set a goal to achieve by 2049, which is the 100-year anniversary of the establishment of the PRC. And so Xi Jinping wants to make that happen. Fact, so so like, if, I, if I can, Mike, interrupt very quickly. It's almost like the Chinese have a grand strategy that they are executing, a 100-year plan. Yes, uh, that that is a, a grand strategy, and they are executing it. Uh, Xi Jinping, uh, because of his aggressive personality, has tried to achieve uh, more of this rejuvenation under his tenure uh, than any previous leader, and so... He is uh, trying to do as much as he can uh, to accelerate the timelines. And we've seen that with regard to some of his goals for uh, modernizing the uh, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. It's one of the fastest modernizations we've seen of any military in any part of history before. Uh, And much of this coming on the backs of the intellectual property theft uh, Mm -hmm. that they engage in all the time and been doing this for, uh, you know, a couple of decades now that continues unabated. And so all of it's designed to increase not only, you know, the military component, but the economic, the cultural, um, so on and so forth, the informational diplomatic to be able to, in fact, raise 
uh, all of the key power components of a country to raise them up so they not only rival the United States, but they supersede uh, U.S. Uh, factors of strength, uh, which is the ultimate measure of supplanting uh, a pre-existing power. So they are on path to do that. Xi Jinping is the motive force behind it, and he is very aggressive in pursuing those goals. So it sounds to me like what you're really outlining there, uh, in not so many words, is is the uh, the tools of national power, uh, dime, as it were, on, from the Chinese perspective, from the Beijing perspective, and they're elevating all four of those national power tools uh, to advance China's interests on a global scale. Uh, that's right, but they're not they're not doing this by playing by the rules. No, right. <laughs> the Chinese, uh, I mean, it's it's lying, cheating, and stealing to get ahead. Uh, that's uh, the basic description here. Uh, you'll hear dulcet words coming out of Beijing, and they'll look like they're professional and they're above board. But I, I, as an intelligence official who has seen this stuff for years, I would just tell you, uh, and you can find many cases uh, in the open source world uh, of the Chinese essentially advancing themselves and rising by hook or by crook. Uh, and doing so on the backs of uh, every nation that they deal with. And so um, so that probably will end up uh, leading to them paying a price at some point. But so far, their tactics, uh, they've been able to get away with it, and they continue to grow their comprehensive national strength uh, by simply being inside these international systems but not following the rules of those international systems and doing what it, whatever they think it takes to be able to, you know, move forward and uh, and and enable China's rise. And I would highlight for our uh, <clears throat> for our listeners that uh, that you, uh, Admiral Mike Studeman, are not just some uh, you know senior military officer spouting these things. You have studied the China problem for the better part of your career. Uh, so you are an expert on on China, uh, one of the people who uh, should be uh, we should be listening to when it comes to these uh, these strategic challenges. Well, uh, I, I I try to be as expert as I can, but no one person can probably yeah. know everything, um, and it's just tough because there's so many moving parts. Uh, John, I, I have been studying this for a quarter century. Uh, I've touched China in almost every job that I've had, and uh, it's. And hard to watch, um, you know, many be naive about uh, the Chinese path ahead and to react very slowly to what is a clear and present danger. I, I think more people understand now. I think they're in Congress. There's bipartisan support. You'll see legislation that hopefully will be passed. It's designed to protect, you know, our critical technologies and to ensure that we don't have these dependencies that create vulnerabilities in our national security, in our economy uh, going forward, uh, directly related to uh, threats posed by China. Uh, and I'm hoping that there are more policies and uh, laws that uh, we will uh, promulgate that will address these kinds of things. But it's not just America. There are other nations, too, that just need to get uh, serious about the the challenge that China will present to them as well. 
So, so you and I were both uh, junior officers back when uh, the Warsaw Pact collapsed and the Soviet Union fell, and a lot of people thought, uh, and the phrase they used was the end of history uh, back then, that there weren't, weren't going to be any more challenges. And then we were hit uh, not too long after that uh, with uh, 9-11, and we focused most of our, fo- our efforts in the intelligence world and even in the military world on, on the counterterrorism uh, challenges around the world. Uh, have we sort of lost our ability to think critically about strategic challenges? I mean, we've shifted back over the last few years to, as you mentioned, and, and probably an inappropriate term of great power competition. It's really something fundamentally different when you consider China, as you mentioned. Are we doing well on the policy strategy match? I mean, we've outlined our policies. As the, are the strategies that we're following to achieve those policies, uh, is there a flaw there or are we doing okay? I do think that deserves a conversation. I think uh, some people use the term uh, strategy in a way that uh, is too loose. It doesn't uh, quite, uh, when you hear what their strategy is for something, it's not quite a strategy. A strategy fundamentally is how, how you're going to achieve uh, a larger objective. Right. Often that's the missing piece of strategy. Strategies will end up if you read uh, a business strategy or you know many other nation strategies. They'll tell you what their end, their desired end state or their objectives are. Right. That's not good enough. Nope. You need to describe <laughs> the means by which you will achieve those objectives. The how. Yep. And if you can't get to the how, then you are not able to prioritize and in fact uh, fulfill what it will take to actually achieve those objectives. And so that uh, typically is the missing link in most strategies, is the very nature of what a strategy should be. Now, look, uh, in the United States, we had uh, a national security strategy. We had a national defense strategy, which actually called out appropriately under the Trump administration uh, the fact that uh, China and Russia were the most concerning powers, uh, North Korea, Iran, and and violent extremists organizations were also you know up there in the top tier of concerns but that uh, when it came to major states that china uh, was going to be uh, the most uh, concerning and deserved uh, the right amount of action to address it and we uh, we had all the right words but we didn't have the follow-through uh, that the national defense strategy called for because frankly we were we were stuck in the middle east mm-hmm. So we did some small things, but we didn't do uh, enough, and we never really got on path uh, to be able to give uh, the China Challenge uh, the degree of investment and resources and focus that was required to really address the how part. And so that will be a challenge of this administration, too, is walking the walk and not talking the talk. Yeah, I think what I've, what I've noticed uh, during my professional career was that America does really well thinking and worrying about the next fiscal quarter, but we really don't even consider the next quarter century. And that's really the kind of thinking I think we need to apply, uh, coming up with a strategy to achieve those policy objectives that we'd like to see in the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And I think that's where we have to start a return to real strategic thinking again. Yeah, I agree. And I also would add to that that it's not just about the defense, you know, right. policies. This is a, this is a, all instruments of American national power and those of our allies and partners mm-hmm. uh, to work together in harmony 
to be able to address some of these challenges. So yeah. the, the China challenge, <clears throat> to some extent, the Russia challenge, they're not unidimensional things which right. you know, show up just on battlefields. Uh, these right. are about you know some of the policies we have for <clears throat> cyber issues or you know uh, our export control measures mm-hmm. uh, or you know some you know trade deals or the the terms of businesses doing you know business in China. Uh, do they share all of their technology to do that? They make a Faustian bargain right. to give their intellectual property to do business for a certain amount of time in China, because those are short-sighted decisions that businesses can make that ultimately could impact the national security of the United States and could be war losing right. uh, if you're not careful. And so, um, so this is where Congress and the executive branch need to come together uh, to be able to look at ways to do sort of a whole of society approach to deal with the magnitude of the challenge that we have, which will affect us for many, many decades to come. And if we underestimate this challenge, if we don't address it in a way that's going to do the job, then we're going to find ourselves dis- ourselves disadvantaged in very key ways in the future. And we will live to regret the fact that we did not turn to and mobilize to get after the challenge, which has all the same characteristics as what the Russia-Soviet Union challenges uh, were in the Cold War. I don't like calling the Cold War, um, and it's probably not an apt description, but I'll tell you, when Henry Kissinger says we're in the foothills of a Cold War, he's essentially telling you that we are kind of on path to the same level of challenge that we had when we were were in the uh, 1950s, and so we ought to pay attention. And, and I'll uh, I'll highlight something that uh, that you told one of my courses uh, at uh, the, my students at, at Carleton College that I was teaching that this isn't uh, this challenge we face with China this is a generational multi generational long term challenge there isn't sort of a finish line here this is going to be something that we have to face as Americans uh, as Western liberal democracies for many decades to come is that is that a fair yeah, I, I agree with that. I would tell you, you know, that uh, Simon Sinek talks about these things in terms of an infinite game, and that's what this is. I mean, geopolitics is an infinite game anyway. Yeah. Uh, but when you think about uh, dealing with major states um, and preventing a major power war, uh, that, you know, you will have um, for major states a struggle for influence and advantage. And this is fundamentally about you know, who gets to dictate uh, the the rules of the international order? Mm-hmm. Uh, are we going to sustain the kind of international rules which have served to deliver prosperity and security and stability, you know, since World War II? Or are we going to change those uh, to favor one nation? And I will tell you that the Chinese are all over trying <laughs> to change uh, the international rule-based system to advantage itself. And they're doing so by infiltrating international institutions, getting key positions. Um, and so what you're going to find is that's what's at stake, is the framework for the international order is now uh, under stress, under threat. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, how are we going to work together as a nation, as a nation of nations, to be able to support what we know to be good, right, and true, that has delivered uh, goodness to uh, more people on the planet than anything else? Mm-hmm. And so, 
we uh, should be very, very concerned about, um, you know, the Chinese approach, because just take a look at Xinjiang and you can determine the character of a nation by the way it treats its citizens. Sure. So America isn't, it, we don't have a clean, you know, uh, record uh, here. You can tell by, you know, what's been happening in this country for the last year or two. But I'll tell you, in a relative sense, compared to what you see with, you know, forms of genocide in Xinjiang and the way they treat yeah. uh, citizens of Hong Kong uh, or, you know, how they, you know, operate uh, with their neighbors, that that's not probably the leading country that you want to have set the new rules for an international order. That is spot on, spot on. So Admiral Mike Studeman, uh, Director of Intelligence for U.S. Indo-Pacific Man, we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, what else do you think the American listeners should know about uh, your theater, the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command? And, and maybe, and this is maybe more even more important, uh, about the young men and women serving in the theater. Yeah, let's talk about them. I, I am really impressed. Uh, you know, I'm a middle-aged guy. I've been in the service for 32 years. I've never been more inspired by the young people that I have the honor and privilege to work with. Uh, it really is amazing to see the talent that's come up uh, through much more talented at an early age than, you know, uh, myself or my peers were. And so I am optimistic about the future. I think that we have a lot of intelligence, intelligent, experienced, uh, savvy uh, folks who are uh, choosing to uh, make a life in the national security community uh, to be good patriots and to you know, commit themselves to an honorable, noble cause and to uh, to work for something that's bigger than themselves. And I take a look around and I get really jazzed up uh, with the energy and the enthusiasm and just the, uh, the sheer um, intelligence of um, our team and our team of teams. And so uh, despite all the challenges we talk about, despite uh, how broad scope they are, how severe they may be, I think at the end of the day, people make a difference. And, and people doing a number of small but important things cumulatively will drive us in the right direction. And so I see that we have sunny days ahead. Uh, I'm really proud of you know what, uh, uh, what the generation uh, is currently doing uh, in the intelligence community. And I think that uh, if I departed uh, here after this tour, that I could be uh, happy that I'd be leaving the intelligence business in good hands uh, with those coming behind. Yeah, that was always the favorite part of the job for me was uh, having the opportunity to, to train and mentor uh, these young sailors and junior officers uh, as, as a naval officer. That leadership uh, piece is, is, was always my favorite part. Uh, so we've come to the end of our show today. Rear Admiral Mike Studeman, Director of Intelligence for U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, thank you for joining us today on National Security This Week. Hey, thanks, John. It was a pleasure. Great seeing you again. And uh, maybe look forward to doing another one of these uh, later on. That would be great. I'd love to have you again, especially if we have some sort of a crisis out there. That'd be a perfect uh, time to, to get you back on. So, All folks, right, that's not... <laughs> if you if you have time in the middle of a crisis, of course. All right. So, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining me today. I look forward to our show again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Have a fantastic finish to your week, everybody. Take care. 
You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.